is happening now. We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Dave Woodard is in the newsroom. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine is in the cloud. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is now calling on Canadians to unite. Better late than never. Here's Scott Thompson. Uh, don't get me started. Oh, I guess you're supposed to. It's the show. That's the conversation. That's those are the conversations that are. Uh, that's what they're like around the dinner table at uh, the Thompson household. Don't get them started. It's Family Day weekend. Don't get them started on that. It's not working. Like, move on. Uh, good afternoon. It is three oh eight. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. It's nine hundred CHML. Will Weber on the board, and in the newsroom, Dave Woodard. Today, feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. All right, you can send us a note, Scott Thompson at nine hundred CHML dot com, and the phone lines are always open at nine zero five six four five three two two one. Uh, start nine nine hundred on your cell. All right, playing the rod off the top because uh, today we are uh, starting off this week, and for the rest of the week, we're going to give away uh, Rod Stewart tickets. I know it's hilarious. I can't believe it. I didn't even think they had concerts anymore. I thought that they didn't even sell musical instruments. That that anyway. Uh, so yeah, Rod Stewart uh, coming to Toronto, Budweiser Stage, July twenty sixth. And we've got your chance to play Rod Stewart Fact or Fiction. How well do you know your Rod? Rod Stewart Fact or Fiction. How well do you know? That's what it says. How well do you know your Rod? Uh, join us at 5 o'clock. In the 5 o'clock hour, we'll give you a chance to uh, go to the, you know, I think everybody was just standing there, staring at the stage, looking at, looking at that like it's one of the wonders of the world. What is that? That's a performer up there, Martha. They're singing and dancing and playing. It's been that long. Uh, so anyway, how uh, how well do you know your uh, Rod is coming up? Rod Stewart, Fact or Fiction, 5 o'clock hour. Tell your friends. We'll be doing it uh, all week. All right. And also a chance for our friends at 980 uh, CFPL uh, in London as well to be joining us on that. Feel free to jump into the conversation, as I mentioned. Love to hear from you. Another jam-packed show. Lots of stuff going on. Uh, it's amazing, uh, you know, what happened in 24 hours. Uh, lots to talk about. The Queen tests positive for COVID-19. She's fine. Don't worry. Tamara Litch, thank you, Will, uh, denied bail uh, earlier on today. She was one of the prominent people in the uh, the convoy protest thing that went on in uh, Ottawa. She's been denied bail, which is uh, fascinating. So we'll talk about that. Well, the Olympics are over. Man, uh, where did that all go? And does anyone care? And things are really heating up in uh, Russia along the Ukraine-Russian border. Uh, a lot of people uh, very concerned. We'll talk about that, give you an update. Uh, the Emergency Act passes over the weekend, uh, as you're uh, well aware of. So uh, lots of interesting things coming up uh, over the course of the afternoon uh, to keep you abreast. Also, 
Uh, and we're going to uh, introduce you to Sawyer Bogdan, reporter with 980 CFPL in just a sec. She's done a three-part uh, series called Journey to Justice, exploring exploring the emotional trauma at, that survivors of sex trafficking experience as they go through the justice system in hopes of uh, holding their traffickers accountable. Uh, so we're going to start that series off today, too, and introduce you to Sawyer and uh, tell the story of what is going on there and the uh, the three-part series that's going on also uh the daytona 500 over the weekend did you watch it well you're not watching the olympics so what else are you watching uh we'll talk about that coming up uh a little later on also uh lots of chatter about invoking the emergency act uh, emergencies act over the course of the weekend obviously the ndp uh supporting that vote the block and the conservatives uh, not, um, and obviously, uh, it's, it's in play. Although, uh, Ottawa's, um, Wellington Street, you could shoot a cannon down it now. It's just, uh, I don't want to give anybody any ideas there. Uh, but yeah, it's completely different than what it was uh, just a few days ago. So uh, that being said, the Emergency Act still is in effect. Uh, we'll talk about that, give you some clarity on it. You know, at the end of the day, people are debating, and, and you know what, I don't think too many Canadians are disagreeing with the implementation of the Emergencies Act, but that's a completely separate question from how did it get this far to the point where we needed uh, the Emergencies Act? It was very clear that, um, you know, by the time we got to the two to three week mark, uh, that uh, things had broken down. There was nobody in control. The Prime Minister was virtually absent for the first two weeks of all of this uh, and, and just thought that it would all go away. Uh, and then, of course, it fell to the shoulders of uh, the mayor of Ottawa and uh, obviously the police chief, the former police chief. We know what happened there. And then all of a sudden, uh, in order to solve this, we have to bring all of the agencies together with an emergencies act. That's the only plan in place, seems to be. And, uh, you know, again, I, don't, I think most of Canadians agree that that was the step that was needed after the three-week mark, which is where we were uh when this was all declared so uh yeah i think the majority of canadians uh would favor the use of the emergencies act at this point i think that's what local polling or that's what polling has shown but they uh, have a completely different opinion when uh they're asking of how we ever got to this point in the first place in the failure of uh, all levels of government to somehow get a handle on this before uh it got to the point that it did um just uh you know, just simply uh, uh, three weeks ago, three weeks ago. And, and my, how the message has changed now. Uh, the prime minister coming out over the weekend and calling for unity, which is, um, you know, good for him. I'm glad he's finally calling for unity. But it would have been nice if he had had that attitude when, you know, people like the truckers or the majority of Ontarians, 90% have uh, their vaccination and he's still ramming home and and vilifying the last 10 percent and and again people were asking the question how many you know we've got like over 90 percent of the ontario population has been vaccinated how far can we take this how far do you want to go what's your goal 100 percent 
and and that's what you know that was the attitude as we pushed into the beginning of what happened what was happening in Ottawa and and now look where we are it's just it's it's been a bizarre journey especially when you see uh where this uh pandemic has gone and the stage that we're at now and of course I'm sure will be analyzed for years to come we will bring you part 1 of global three part journey uh three part series journey to justice uh exploring the emotional trauma that survivors of sex trafficking experience as they go through uh, the justice system and try to bring the people who have victimized them uh, to some sort of justice in hopes of holding these traffickers accountable. And first, we'll talk to Sawyer Bogdan, and she is a reporter with 980 CFPL in London and with us now. Sawyer, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks for having me. So, Sawyer, give us a little bit, a, a bit of back history here and, and, and why and how you got into this. And, and do, do, do Canadians, Ontarians realize what a, a major issue this is, what a problem this is? Well, I first um, got into this story um, last year. We, I did a piece on child sex trafficking in Canada. And from that, I found there was a lot of things that were standing out, that there were problems within the justice system that I think we needed to explore and talk about a little bit more. So that's sort of how this piece came together in the last couple of months. It was really starting to look at the moment a survivor decides to report to police, to them going through the entire court process and kind of what happens afterwards. Um, what are the issues here? Why uh, are conviction rates specifically for human trafficking low? And um, why are survivors not feeling supported? Because speaking to a lot of agencies that support survivors, that's something you hear over and over again, that the entire process can be really traumatizing towards them, um, having to retell their story over and over again. And then also uh, that they're not feeling supported as they go through this process. So tell us about the journey and and how they get to where they are. It starts off with a survivor. Um, either they've worked with an agency possibly for years before they're ready to sub- report to police or they've they've just hit a point where they need to leave their trafficking situation and they've gained the courage uh, to speak to law enforcement. And then from there, it's kind of the start of a a very long process that takes several years in order for their case to go through the court system, usually. And um, through that, it's uh, having somebody, you know, tear apart your story piece by piece. Um, It can be incredibly traumatizing to be trafficked. So you're not necessarily able to tell it sort of in a linear fashion, like most police officers would like. And then through that, um, there's the waiting process to get to the court system. Um, there's And you need to be protected from your trafficker during that point in time. That's something that we've seen come up as an issue. And then you're also, it's also just like the time it takes for this to happen. If you're trying to heal from a trauma or something that's happened to you that's really bad, um, going through years and years of having to retell that story to multiple law enforcement, multiple crowns, um, it can really make it so you can't move on from that situation. And a lot of people find it tiring and they decide that they, they can't go through with it. Um, why is it that, uh, and I'm oversimplifying this obviously, but why is it that they simply can't walk away? You talked about obviously the trafficker keeping that chain on them. Explain that a bit. 
I mean, it's a safe, it's a safety concern. I don't think um, when you, and uh, a lot of people are tricked into sex trafficking. Um, it's not necessarily like a conscious decision you're making. I think that it's important to distinguish between sex workers and sex trafficking victims. Um, a lot of people are targeted by traffickers. They're in a very vulnerable situation. They're possibly teenagers when they're targeted. That happens in a lot of cases. And um, so they get manipulated into this situation. And then it's not as easy as deciding like, hey, I don't really like my job anymore. Yeah. I'm going to go try something different. Um, there's somebody who's been emotionally abusing you, manipulating you um, and physically abusing you for for months or possibly years. And it's really hard to break away from that because they there's a lot of threats that happen. There's a lot of emotional manipulation, but then also just like physically um, telling somebody, I don't want to do this anymore. And I don't want to work for you can potentially have like very bad, like physical consequences mm. of them just not letting them leave. Uh, three part series here. What are we going to hear in the first part coming up after the news at the bottom of the hour? So in the first part, you're going to hear Morgan's story. Um, she's a really amazing survivor and she kind of encapsulated the issues that survivors face from first reporting to police to the waiting process and then going through the court system and how she feels about the entire process afterwards. And uh, and then the next two stories will explore um, sort of how Ontario's strategy has changed and then also like alternatives for survivors that don't necessarily want to go through the formal reporting process. Sawyer Bogdan with us, reporter with 980C FPL in London, three-part series, Journey to Justice, exploring the emotional trauma that survivors of sex trafficking experience as they go through uh, the justice system and try to get their story told. Uh, great reporting, Sawyer. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time. We'll be look forward to listening to these over the next three days. You'd be well. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Those motorheads out of uh, out there, uh, Daytona 500 uh, ran this weekend, kicking off the unofficial start of the racing season uh, in some form or another, certainly with NASCAR. Let's bring in Eric Thomas, Raceline Radio, heard every Sunday night right here uh, on CHML as part of the Raceline Radio Network. Eric is with us now. Eric, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, we're good. We're good. It was uh, it was a very entertaining race, and there were a lot of storylines that you and I talked about going into the race that, that played out uh, rather well, the new car and how it behaved in traffic. And uh, we saw a thrill at, at the end on the very last lap that has happened in the last handful of these things. And uh, a young 23-year-old cup rookie who's got a lot of truck and Xfinity experience wins his first a NASCAR Cup race for his boss, Roger Penske, on his 85th birthday. So it was scripted uh, very, very well. So it was, it was, And obviously in the number two car that uh, well, Brad Kislowski uh, walked out of and into the number six car at Roush and such, uh, Kurt and I uh, watched this guy win a truck race at Canadian Tire Motorsports Park, Mossport, uh, yep. several years ago. And, man, it didn't, take him, it didn't take him long to get up the ranks. No, it didn't. And it's, it's interesting you mentioned... Canadian Tire Motorsport Park and his truck win there in 2017, because that's not the only Canadian connection to Austin Sindrick, uh, who, whose dad, as, as you probably know, uh, is the president of Penske Racing, and he told his son that you're going to come up through the ranks. You're not going to lean on the Penske resources. You're going to do it the right way, and he did, up through karting and everything else like that. But there's another Canadian connection that most people aren't aware of, and I, ha I had it verified, is that in, in growing up with the Penske organization, you may recall the late 
great Greg Moore, uh, who was taken yeah. from us in 1999 in a crash at Fontana. He was on his way to Penske Racing and was going to be a superstar and probably the, the biggest uh, racer that Penske probably would have had since Rick Mears, but unfortunately was taken from us in that crash. Austin Sendrick's helmet is a tribute to Greg Moore, and if you see his helmet, any mm. photographs of it are on TV, if you have a chance, it is Greg Moore's helmet design that he got permission from uh, from Rick Moore, Greg's dad, to put on his helmet because he just admired Greg so much, and and Austin has you know uh, Indy car background, an open wheel background, a sports car background, but he just liked Greg, he liked his carriage, and they had helmets made because Greg was on his way there. Never got there for reasons we know, but uh, for Austin to have that design on his helmet as a tribute to uh, the late, great Greg Moore was another little Canadian angle, which I thought was great. I mean, the, uh, the smile crossed my face when I, wow. when, I, when I saw that and heard that. That's a, that's a great little story, too. That's why you're the host of Raceline Radio Network, pal, right there, those kind of storylines. Um, your take <laughs> on the car, and the reason I'm asking this yep. um, is because there was an accident during the Xfinity race uh, where literally uh, the engine play. came right out oh, of the car, yeah, yeah. and then I think the whole rear end came out and went flying across and we all yeah. know what happens when parts and pieces go missing um, or go flying. One of the piece suspension pieces ended up the, in the grill of one of the haulers that was on oh, the side of the track. Yeah. Uh, your thoughts on how, uh, obviously, they, there, there was the typical horrific crashes of high-speed racing, uh, but your thoughts on how these cars stayed together? Well, yeah, uh, I thought they raced very, very well. One thing, I'll get to your, the, the crash in a second here. The one thing I did like about it was, and these are these, are these new cars, they look more like a Camaro, Mustang, and a, and a Camry, uh, in the fact that the body panels are now uh, carbon fiber reinforced plastic, prefab stuff. They're not sheet steel anymore. They don't cut tires as readily as the old ones. And I wondered how they were going to do on a big speedway in traffic in the draft because those cars are so close together with the throttle bodies designed the way they are not to go too fast. So you get a lot of pack racing. I thought the stability, if you notice the old car, the old offset car, when it came down off the banking to the straightaway scooter, there was a lot of instability. And the car yeah. tended to sort of like boogaloo and, and kick itself sideways one way or the other. And that triggered an awful lot of wrecks. Now, we had wrecks this time but it was mostly caused by guys getting into the back of other people and spinning them out on that. And that wreck that you saw, there was a car got upside down in the cup race and in that Xfinity race as well. This, again, a work in progress, but why a car would disintegrate like that getting into the fence, I think that's one thing they're going to have to look at with a tether system or something where yeah. they can tie some of that stuff down. But to see an engine and a rear end get ripped yeah. out of a car getting up into the fence was a little alarming to me, and no doubt with NASCAR R&D, it's alarming to them too. So you're going to see them work on that and figure out, okay, are these things built the right way? Is there enough protection down there, and can they stop that from happening again? Again, we, we learn a lot of this safety stuff and innovation uh, you know, reactively rather than being proactive, but uh, they'll fix it. I, you know, I don't know whether that's a, a mass deficiency, but they'll, they'll get on top of it, I have no doubt. And Bubba Wallace second again. Yeah. <laughs> How do you swallow that? Well, you, you know what, though? It's good. It, it was like another observation with, with young Austin Sendrick, the guy who won it, and Bubba as well, is that Bubba was never too far from the front pretty much the entire day. And Austin Sendrick was up up there in the lead pack pretty much most of the afternoon as well. So you know the car is there. And again, with, with Daytona... And the way they race and the way, you know, everybody mm. just charging there in the last lap and just inches apart. He wasn't 
let's put it this way, he was certainly competitive, and that's good for the future because they know the car is fast enough. You just need a couple of brakes and get with the right people. Yeah. Daytona is such an anomaly. You need you need drafting help to help you get there, and sometimes you have it and sometimes you didn't. And, and, and you're going to hear uh, Austin Cedric on the show on Sunday, 80 o'clock right here on CHML this coming Sunday, is the fact that when he was ready to go, everybody else bailed. He had no help, but he was just able, just able to get you know get away from Blaney mm. and get away from Wallace and, and, and win that race. So a bit of a crapshoot, but at least those guys know they're competitive and they're fast enough. And you'll hear more on Sunday night. Uh, Eric Thomas, Raceline Radio Network, and we'll be on uh, CHML Sunday night with the winner. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You take care, Scooter. Always enjoy these. We'll do some more. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, in a vote Monday night, 185 MPs voted in favor of the use of the Emergencies Act. 151 voted against. The vote was on a motion put forward by the Liberal government that outlined their decision to invoke the never-before-used be, uh, never, uh, new emergency powers after week-long demonstrations that occupied downtown Ottawa. What is the political fallout of all of this for all of the parties? Let's bring in Daniel Perry, consultant Summa Strategies, and with us now. Daniel, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, thanks, Scott. It's always good to join you. Hope you're doing well as well. So far, so good. So now that things have settled down and it looks like the streets of Ottawa are are pretty much uh, back to normal, um, how has this reflected on our leaders? Let's start, and we'll go through you know the Conservatives, the NDP, but let's start with the Liberals and the Prime Minister. As And again, it's still early, but as we look back on the last three weeks, how are we viewing the Prime Minister right now? The streets may be cleared, but I, I don't think people's opinions of the prime minister and the opposition leaders have really changed that much. I think there's still genuine frustration towards the prime minister, whether that be on vaccines or his approach to COVID. I think him introducing the uh, like the emergency act probably is not a good look for him. Uh, it seems like he brought a gun to a knife fight and it's a little bit overkill. So uh, many of uh, Canadians, uh, majority of Canadians, thought it was uh, it was worth bringing in the Emergencies Act. However, I, I don't think many Canadians are feeling good about it necessarily. No, it's never something that you want to see have to happen. It, it's very much there for very extreme situations. And to be fair, this was an extreme situation. But it also seems like it could have been a situation that could have been prevented. What about uh, the Prime Minister now after virtually um, not real well, during the first two weeks of this, not really uh, being too vocal about it at all, kind of walking away from it. Uh, now that uh, we are where we are, yesterday he tried to strike a tone of unity, saying that Canadians have to come together, uh, which obviously makes you ask the question, my goodness, if he had said this uh, maybe a few weeks earlier, we wouldn't have been in this mess. Do you, did you find it odd or do people find it odd that, that he's gone from vilifying the last 10% to now asking Canadians to unite? I think it is very odd, uh, especially because with most situations, ignoring it doesn't usually help the problem. And that was the approach that he took for the first two to three weeks. So then he decided to pull up, that he needed to show up and pull out the Emergencies Act. Uh, I think it, the Canadians are probably disappointed that, that it got to this point and that Commer has have prevailed. And especially if you're listening to the debate in the House of Commons over this weekend, it does not seem like our politicians are in their best form. There was a lot of misinformation spread. And frankly, I was very disappointed in some of the members, what they had to say on this topic, on both sides of the aisle, to be frank with you. Yeah. 
Let's talk about the conservatives. Uh, it, it seems that whenever they're the need, whenever they're needed the most, they're dilly dallying and shooting themselves in the foot. Uh, I wonder if they could have ever predicted this happening when they ousted their leader a while back. I think in a situation like this, you want to be your party wants to have a leader that's very firm, very clear on what they stand. And right now, the conservatives don't have that. And with respect to Bergen, she has done a fair job trying to keep the ship afloat. But that said, she has steered into the iceberg a few times, especially sitting down with the protesters at the beginning of this, saying how great they were, and then flip-flopping to telling them to go home. So it's a bit of a confusing message coming from her. Would you ever thought what it would have been like had uh, the Conservatives not ousted their leader and O'Toole was still in charge? Do you think that would change anything here? I think the end result would have been the same. The role of the opposition, especially the official leader of the opposition, is not to shake their head and agree with the government. They're there to be a check and a balance. So I think O'Toole would have disagreed and voted against it like the Conservatives did. But I think the tone he would have took would have been a little bit more balanced and fair. And to be frank, I think he would have been a little less hard right and a little bit more logical and thoughtful in his analysis of the situation. What about Jugmeet Singh's performance during all of this? It seems when it seemed when the jello really started to hit the fan, he backed off. He wasn't you didn't hear much from him. I think he realized that, especially when it became a confidence vote, that he and his party could not afford to go into another election. So I think he was honestly backed into a very poor position and good on the government for playing politics like they do so well, uh, forcing him into the corner where he had to support the government in this. I think the article from Ed Broadband that was put out on uh, Sunday evening kind of helped this caucus calm down a little bit because they are very much the party of trying to stick with like rule and order and i don't think a lot of people were eager and eager in the ndp to vote for this but at the end of the day it would be even worse for them politically if they went to an election right now how do you think history will judge all three parties i don't think history will be too kind i think it's a very sad moment to be a canadian i think the sad moment in canadian history that we got to this point i think we're gonna have a lot more long hard discussions and they say history is won by the victor and i don't know who the victor in this situation is because we all honestly seem like losers at the moment mm. daniel perry consultant summa strategies daniel thank you for the time be well thank you take care all right uh let's move on and and talk about a uh a fascinating article that uh, column that was in uh, the Toronto Star. You can find more at thestar.com. Who supports the freedom protesters and why? Uh, let's bring in Frank Graves, president of Ottawa-based Ecos Research uh, Associates, and is with us now. Frank, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm great. Coming out of uh, soon to not be occupied Ottawa, so uh, everything's good. <laughs> Fascinating uh, opinion piece in the Star uh, that you had uh, just recently. Uh, I'm going to quote just a bit of it. But the survey work of Eco's research suggests that what is taking place in Ottawa and other locales is not the behavior of fringe Canadians, but rather evidence of significant general discontent and unhappiness. Sympathy with the protests and their objectives is felt by a third of Canadians and by no means a random third, but a third defined by clear demographic and attitudinal factors. Uh, the most important is generational. We'll talk about that in just a sec. Frank, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad to be here. So what is happening to Canada? How do you explain the divisiveness that is felt even after an emergencies act and the streets of Ottawa are clear? Well, I think the uh, debate about uh, passports and the, uh, the, the protests 
you know, they obviously were very much focused on those issues, but the roots of those, I think, existed before the pandemic even arrived on our shores. We were seeing fairly significant levels of polarization developing in the country, a degree to which each other side didn't like the other side, some evidence that there was a, a large group that felt disaffected, didn't feel particularly hopeful for their economic future, thought they were losing their place in the society and the economy. And those those forces, which kind of diminished as the pandemic, in the early stages of the pandemic, have come back really in even more fierce terms and expressed very vividly in the protests that we saw certainly in Ottawa, but in other parts of the country. And, you know, when you start looking a little more carefully, like the depiction of this as sort of a fringe minority, which was perhaps an unfortunate uh, depiction by the prime minister, you know, that's not, that's not what we see or what the public see. The public, you know, the majority of the public don't support either the goals of the, yeah. uh, or the mandate or maybe not even the, the methods are used, but there is a lot of sympathy that they have, they have voiced some things which are a reflection of a deep sense of malaise in different parts of the country, which has been brought to a boil. Remember when this pandemic began and we've been holy on this pretty well daily since March, 2020, most Canadians thought it would be over in six months. Yeah. So here we are going under our third year, and it's not surprising with the levels of stress and anxiety that have gone that we're going to see, you know, the public is in a really fractious kind of bad mood. And for a certain portion of the uh, Canadian population, this is even more acute. So younger Canada, and I've been defined that very broadly as under 50, uh, I think the level of ang- economic anxiety that they're feeling and the stress that they've endured has really wreaked havoc here. They um, they tend to think that the economy is either in a state of depression or severe recession, which it's not. They look at their economic future in very dark terms. They don't see a place for themselves. And uh, this coalesces with a high incidence of this group who have rejected you know mainstream media and are really uh, consuming, uh, offsetting that with a lot of consumption of social media, particularly from places like YouTube. They're sharing a lot of disinformation, as well as like, legitimate grievances. And it's all a very incendiary mix, Which, uh, but it's, it's certainly not a fringe. It's a very significant portion of our, our current democracy and our current society. And it mirrors some of the shifts that we've seen going on in other advanced Western societies, such as what we saw to the South with the election of Donald Trump and Brexit in Britain. And a lot of the tools that were used to explain why that happened actually were fitting quite well in Canada. And I know that I had a lot of response where when we first were arguing this, and we published this in a couple of places, they, there was this kind of sneering or denial. Well, we're immune from that. Canada, we don't, we won't have yeah. that, but. We certainly do see the same kinds of things here. On, I was polling on some questions that had just been asked in the United States on beliefs about the pandemic and whether or not it was, uh, for example, the, not the pandemic, but the vaccine. Would it, would, it, would, would it alter your DNA or would it make you infertile? Things which science shows clearly are not the case. But exactly the same numbers of Canadians and Americans did believe some of these things. And those people who did had lost trust in the system. They rejected the idea that passports were uh, something that was actually going to make us safer. And so this is a new feature that I think is, you know, kind of making this polarization even more challenging to deal with than in the past.
Is the center gone now? Um, you know, even the prime minister is now selling a message of unity, which it's unfortunate he didn't sell that a few weeks ago. Uh, but he's he's completely done a 180 there. H- have we lost the center? Where's the silent majority here? In my view, the center is, is uh, hopefully temporarily gone. There is no center. Uh, and I don't think that's unique to Canada. You've seen this hollowing of the center going on in Europe. Uh, it's disguised a bit in the United States because they have a two-party system. But in, in Canada, for example, in our recent polling, we have a number of times found something that we didn't see in 30 or 40 years of polling. No party getting over 30%. Hmm. A party can win government in Canada with 31% or 32%. Uh, you know, this is, so you see uh, a, a political landscape that is polarized and fragmented. You know, we used to get government sometimes, you know, Mulroney would get over 50. I know that Cretchen got close to that a couple of times, but it's a dream now. It's, you know, it's a big deal if you can get up to 33 points. So I think that's a reflection of this fragmentation and polarization. When I look at the key issues of the day, such as most immediately, you know, what do we need to do to close out the pandemic safely? Utter disagreement. There's not much common ground. I think everybody feels that it's going to be over relatively sooner rather than later. But, you know, does that mean we should leave certain types of restrictions in place for the time being? About 60%, 65% of Canadians say yes. 20%, 25% say no, and the rest are in the middle. But there's no common ground. And I suspect that when the pandemic lifts and we see this thing in our rear view mirror, which is hopefully sooner rather than later, we're going to see these fractures re reoccur and express them things in deba- such as debates about what to do about climate change or climate emergency, if you're on one side of it. Uh, what are we going to do about dealing with the massive debt that we've incurred during the pandemic? So there's a bunch of really important questions that have, we're not even really dealing with right now, and uh, they, they mirror a lot of the fault lines we're seeing emerging around the debate about the pandemic and passports. Frank Graves with us, president of Ottawa-based Ecos Research Associates in our divided country. And how do we unite it now, post-pandemic? Frank, thanks for the time. Be well. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Obviously, we know over the weekend that uh, things in Ottawa got, uh, well, as close to normal as they can be uh, after the Emergency Act was read and uh, various police services from Ontario and Quebec, uh, and actually, I think across the country, moved in on Ottawa and um, and uh, and remove protesters. The lots of people saying that this was, of all the tools in the toolbox, perhaps um, uh, the biggest to use and the last to use. Uh, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association is challenging the use of the Emergencies Act. And to talk more about that, Laura Berger is with us, counselor for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, and with us now. Laura, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. So, uh, you know, a phrase that's been overused 25,000 million times, uh, lots of tools in the toolbox. Uh, was this the right one to use for this situation? Well, we at the Civil Liberties Association don't think so. Uh, I think it's really important to keep in mind that the government declared a nationwide emergency for the first time since the Emergencies Act was introduced way back in 1988. And that's a really big deal because the Emergencies Act allows cabinet to pass orders first uh, and get approval from parliament afterwards. So that's something that usually doesn't happen in our democracy. 
uh, and is allowed only under states of emergency. What's more is the act allows cabinet to pass orders granting itself really sweeping powers. So that's where we saw the powers to prohibit public assemblies that might be reasonably believed to lead to a breach of the peace and also to adopt all those financial measures, including freezing the bank accounts of people who either participate in or support people who are participating in assemblies that are deemed unlawful. So in our view, those were really sweeping decisions um, and really broad, uh, extraordinary powers that should not have been invoked. If not needed, and for the reasons you've just expressed, why did the prime minister use this? Uh, why do it if not needed, if, if, if it was overkill? Well, there's no question that adopting really broad sweeping powers can be useful. Um, It can certainly be useful for law enforcement and for government if they want to respond to a situation in a really sweeping, aggressive way. Uh, But the Emergencies Act actually requires not just that the powers be useful, but that they be necessary. So one of the thresholds and one of the legal requirements in the act is that it has to be a situation that can't be dealt with under the capacity or authority of individual provinces or under existing laws of Canada. And at the Civil Liberties Association, we don't think that threshold was met. Even under normal, regular Canadian laws, police have lots of tools for dealing with protests, including very disruptive protests. They can it seemed, it seemed though, let me interrupt you there, Laura. It seemed that they were they didn't have the ability to assemble them, though. They didn't have the ability to, like many people have said, you don't need the Emergencies Act because there's, there's police acts uh, there that'll take care of all of this. But nobody seemed to be able to organize any of these in one uh, sort of united command and then execute execute that. Uh, had this gone too far, therefore the Emergency Act had to be used. I mean, because everybody's sort of like pointing to everybody else. No, it's not my job, their job. Well, I think it's important to keep in mind that the blockades at the border were dismantled using regular police powers prior to the invocation of the Emergencies Act. So the blockade on the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor, that was dismantled and cleared before the Prime Minister invoked the Emergencies Act. But Laura, Act. to be fair, to be fair, I mean, it's obvious that the one in Ottawa was a lot more hunkered down than the ones in on the borders. They were there for a few days. You know, Ottawa was there for for three weeks. Do you think that because they didn't do anything in the last three, three weeks, this is why they used this? It gave them that sweep power. It's almost as if they created a crisis only to bring it in to to solve it. Yeah, there's no question that the situation in Ottawa was really difficult. And I want to make clear that we absolutely have heard the concerns of Ottawa residents, particularly members of marginalized communities who experienced harassment and even assaults over the past month in Ottawa. That was a really tricky situation. But a good question to ask is why a national state of emergency was necessary to deal with a difficult situation in Ottawa. Keep in mind that the orders as passed last week, they don't just apply to Ottawa. They are not specific to any geographic area or to any specific protest. They apply from coast to coast to coast, and they restrict the activities of all Canadians. So a protest that blocks traffic in downtown Halifax or downtown Vancouver is subject to those orders. 
And local police forces have the ability to enforce those orders. It's not the federal government controlling how the orders are enforced once they are enacted. So that's really our concern at the CCLA is that we have these broad sweeping powers that apply right across the country, not just in Ottawa. And in our view, that's real overreach on the part of the federal government. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association challenging the use of the Emergencies Act for the uh, solving of the problem in Ottawa. Laura Berger with us, counsel for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Laura, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Absolutely. You as well. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. In honor of National Human Trafficking Awareness Day, Global News is shining a light on the barriers with within policing and the court system that impact our conviction rates. Part one of Global News' three-part journey to justice series explores the emotional trauma survivors of sex trafficking experience as they go through the justice system in hopes of holding their traffickers accountable. Global's Sawyer Bogdan has more on the story. I was looking for additional income on top of my full-time job at that point because I had an emergency, like a really large emergency bill that came in. It was desperation in the spring of 2019 that led Morgan to respond to an online job posting, pulling her back into the sex trade. For her safety, Global News is only using Morgan's first name. Because of my previous history of being trafficked in the past, I saw some red flags. It was one of those situations where I was ignoring the red flags because I was desperate to be able to pay off this emergency bill. After meeting with the man who would become her trafficker, Morgan thought it would be a temporary solution. But she quickly realized her trafficker was trying to make her indebted to him. He had said that I'm going to be doing like a professional shoot. I rent a mansion and whatnot and then hire a photographer and like they professionally edit these photos and you'll just pay me back. A week later, Morgan decided to report her trafficker to the police after he booked her for a party with a well-known biker gang. I was very much scared for my life at that point. The knowledge of which group this was and seeing people that I knew and friends that I knew go missing and not to be heard from again. Morgan is sharing her story to bring attention to the emotional trauma victims go through in the court system and the low conviction rates once the process is all over. Executive Director of the Canadian Centre to End Human Trafficking, Julia Drydick, estimates less than 10% of survivors of human trafficking want to talk to law enforcement noting that most human trafficking cases in Canada are sex trafficking related. Human trafficking is a high reward, low risk crime. Traffickers are doing this because it's making them a ton of money. And then they know that the chances of charges being laid or convictions are incredibly small. According to Statistics Canada's Trafficking in Persons in Canada report for 2018, 45% of the cases successfully linked to an incident of police-reported human trafficking did not involve any charges of human trafficking. Detective Staff Sergeant with the Ontario Provincial Police Anti-Human Trafficking Unit, Andrew Taylor, says officers take a victim-centered approach when dealing with trafficking cases. 
Our focus has been, because it is a victim-centered approach, removing individuals who are in an exploitive, sexually exploitive situation from that sexually exploitive situation. Taylor also notes that while they might not have enough evidence for a trafficking charge, they may be able to lay other charges. Unknown to Morgan, London police had been working to build a case against her trafficker for some time. With her statement, police were able to arrest her trafficker and the woman helping him that same day. It felt very much like once they got what they needed that that was it. I was of no use to them anymore, so all of that promised support was gone. After her trafficker was released on probation, Morgan says he repeatedly harassed her in person and daily over text. Leading up to her day in court, she says there were at least two times her trafficker strangled her. I don't even remember exactly what happened with this interaction or how I ended up on the ground, but ended up with like all of the skin missing like on sections of my forearms um, from falling into the ground, bruises. And I went to the hospital both times. When she tried reporting the bail breaches to police, nothing happened. I gave up reporting them, one, because it pissed them off, and two, because the detective gave me attitude about it. What I was told was that it was basically my word against his. It was only when he was rearrested for a separate issue that Morgan says the harassment stopped until he was let out of jail and it started all over again. Both her trafficker and the woman helping him pled guilty, but not for trafficking. The male trafficker pled guilty to procuring sexual services, material benefit from sexual services, and advertising sexual services, carrying with it a sentence of 18 months. What happened here highlights a bigger issue of low trafficking conviction rates and an underlying problem of trafficking cases not meeting the threshold for a human trafficking conviction. In the courts, they were changed to what they said was like an equivalent of a non-trafficking because the difference between what police have to prove legally is different from what the Crown has to prove in order to see a, a successful conviction. According to Statistics Canada's Trafficking in Persons in Canada report for 2019, when examining court decisions by charges, 89% of human trafficking charges were stayed, withdrawn, dismissed or discharged, while only 7% of charges resulted in a guilty finding. Data on conviction rates do not include Ontario, Manitoba and Saskatchewan, but experts say a lack of data does not mean the issue is any less prevalent. The provincial coordinator for the Ontario Human Trafficking Prosecution Team, Susan Orlando, says just because someone is not found guilty for human trafficking does not mean they will not be found guilty for other charges. But I would say that in the majority of cases, you know, without being able to put a number on it, my experience has been that there's a conviction for something, um, at, you know, at the conclusion of the case. For Drydick, one of the major issues is that the court system is still very reliant on a victim's testimony. Those witnesses are then cross-examined, treated like they're actually guilty themselves, treated like they did it to themselves, that they, they made their bed and now they need to sleep in it. And that whole system is incredibly traumatizing. Orlando notes that this is changing, with police working to find other evidence. But despite support, Morgan still found the process difficult. 
everything kept getting adjourned. And I was told by my victim witness worker from the courts that it's a tactic that the defense lawyers use to try and deter the victims from continuing. They just get tired of the constant stress. So they give up. Because the time already spent in custody prior to his conviction counted as time and a half, Morgan's trafficker was out of jail a few months after being found guilty. While it was a win that there was a conviction, it doesn't feel like a win. The harassing messages continued until he was rearrested for a separate incident in 2021. But the situation has not left Morgan feeling good about the process. She has this message for survivors. While I would love to say that everybody should report, it's not easy. And I wish it was. And we need to see change so that it is easier for victims to come forward. But I'm in the mindset that victims need to do what's best for them. And that doesn't always go by what society thinks they should do. And that's okay. Sawyer Bogdan, Global News. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. As I've said many times and and long before there were protests in Ottawa or on any borders, uh, I was just so surprised that uh, we had a prime minister that is constantly uh, vilifying the last 10 percent who uh, don't agree with the rest and and, and want a vaccination, as opposed to celebrating the fact that we got between 80 and 90 percent of Canadians uh, are, are completely vaccinated. So rather than, you know, doing headstands and, and, and partying in the streets, we're, we're, we're dividing our country. We're vilifying our neighbors and our family and our friends. And we've certainly seen what has happened over three weeks uh, in Ottawa. And fascinating that now this week, after vilifying the last 10% that don't think like the rest, uh, the prime minister is actually calling for unity. Uh, which is quite a surprise because um, uh, he has cer- certainly spent since the last election uh, trying very uh, hard to what I feel is divide this country. Let's bring in Stephen LaDrew, past president of the Liberal Party of Canada and YouTube channel, the LaDrew three minute interview and is with us now has a column in the Toronto Sun, an opinion column. Uh, Trudeau has brought Canadians to the tipping point. Stephen LaDrew with us now. Stephen, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Very well, and thank you for inviting me on, Scott. Good to be here. Are you surprised that the Prime Minister called for unity today, or this weekend, after what we've seen for the last several weeks? Oh, no, not at all. He's a very clever guy in many ways, and it's uh, smart to call for unity. And if he doesn't get unity, he's going to force it with the Emergencies Act. (laughs) He's uh, (laughs) He's going to make us all be unified or else. Um... I think that uh, he, is, uh, he is polarizing. He has polarized the country. I wrote that article because uh, I, I live outside Toronto uh, now, and I was driving along a country road, and uh, I saw more and more trucks and tractors parked on the front of the laneway with signs on. Uh, first of all, they have a Canadian flag up, and secondly, a sign saying you know, Trudeau should do something to himself, many of them. And these are ordinary, law-abiding, loyal Canadians who have just had it up to here. So, you know, I uh, also uh, wrote about the um, the vaccination, and and I think that a lot of the truckers were not just upset about the vaccination, but people have reached a tipping point. Not just with the vaccination, not just with the pandemic, 
but with Trudeau, Scott, telling them mm. what to do. And, and he's been doing that for years and years. And you know darn well that he doesn't follow his own edicts. It's a, it's a small group of elites in, uh, in Toronto and Montreal and, and Ottawa who think they know better. They're telling everybody what to do in many respects. And people, I think, are just finally fed up and saying, you know, this is, this is wrong. It's funny how uh, many will say, well, you know, they'll use different jurisdictions. They're using the leader that uh, one of the leaders that was uh, uh, refused bail today, that she's confusing the U.S. Constitution with the Canadian Constitution, uh, painting everybody with the same brush, trying to make them look stupid. Do you think the liberals, um, do you think they're having a hard time accepting that people have just had enough with the prime minister, whether it's blackface, whether it's truth and reconciliation, and now this? I mean, I can't like I can't think of a more divisive prime minister in my time on the planet. I think you're absolutely right, and I think they are. Well, actually, many liberals in Ottawa are not having a hard time. I mean, let's just face it. And and one of the papers today, I think it was the Globe Mail, said Scott, you um, know. MPs pass Emergency Act. Well, they were, yeah, they were MPs, but there are the Liberal MPs. That vote last night to continue to give these extraordinary powers to uh, Trudeau uh, to, as he said, search out across the country these people um, was, uh, was party lines. And, and your listeners have to realize, I'm sure most of them do, that these Liberal MPs uh, get, uh, first of all, a very big salary, Secondly, many of them have perks on top of that uh, as a result of the prime minister, and they want to be on the right side of it. For many of them, it's going to be the best time they've ever had in their whole lives. So they don't want uh, to cross the prime minister or vote against any of his edicts. People, liberals across the country, uh, party people, or the old party people, because the Liberal Party uh, is now Justin's uh, tool, uh, they're, ups- they're upset with uh, Justin. Many of them uh, know that he's just not up to the job, uh, that he is divisive, and that he is hurting Canada. Canada, I think, is, um, you know, is, is in, it's not in danger. I mean, Canada is a strong country, but Canada is not in great shape right now. It'll come back. When we have a new prime minister, it will, uh, it will come back. But for the moment, Scott, I think that uh, people are just saying, for many things the federal government doesn't stand for, <laughs> We've had enough. We've had enough. I'm sure you hear that on your show all the time. It seems as if, you know, one time the, you know, the Liberal Party was just the left of center. The Conservative Party was just the right of center. The NDP, of course, farther to the left. It seems that the current prime minister has taken this party way to the left, like right over to the point where Jagmeet Singh can't even say anything anymore. It's, he doesn't have much to say. Is that accurate? I think it's accurate, although I would, I would put it, uh, it's way far to the left, but I would put it a slightly different nuance to it, which is that it's not left or right. It's more, it's these, quote, progressive politicians, some of whom are right and some of whom are left, but they want to tell people what to do for your own good. You know, you don't know what you're doing, but we're going to tell you what to do, and we're going to enforce it with the laws. And he is, Trudeau is out there saying, you know, with the, with the laws and with his uh, executive acts, this is what the kind of Canada that we're going to have, and he wants to change it radically. And, um, and a lot of people just uh, hear the news and they just shake their heads. You mentioned a few of them, but there's so many situations. I mean, even on Truth and Reconciliation, when, 
when he announced one day, well, we're paying, you know, forty billion B was billion dollars, and uh, I asked, I said, well, how many people are going to benefit? Oh, well, we don't know yet. Well, we don't know whether everybody who may have been impacted, and no evidence, no solid evidence in many cases, are going to get one million, two million, five million, and then, and then, and then the day after the issue is gone. And normal people just sort of mm. look at that and say, gosh, what's happening to this country? So many circumstances. And, and Trudeau was brought up in 24 Sussex. He was brought up in a lifetime of luxury and of not being responsible for his own actions. Scott, you and I and your listeners are, are responsible for our own actions. Trudeau has never been responsible for our own actions. And, you know, the, in, that, in many cases, the national press know a lot of, a lot of stuff about Trudeau. And they uh, just say, oh, well, he's the prime minister. We're going to suck up to him. That's got to stop. Yeah. That's a whole other discussion, Stephen. Stephen LaDrew <laughs> with us, past president, Liberal Party of Canada. Check out the YouTube channel, the LaDrew three-minute interview. Stephen, thanks so much for the time. Be well. And you as well. Great pleasure. Bye, Scott. All right. Speaking of Russia and Ukraine, obviously tension along those borders uh, for the last several weeks now. Russia has says now that it recognized uh, recognizes separatist regions of Ukraine. What does that mean? Let's bring in Arl Brown, professor of international relations, senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Arl, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. Uh, Arl. Thank you so much. Uh, Russia says it's now supporting these so-called breakaway regions. Are they breakaway regions that want to be a part of Russia, or is there little say there? Uh, give us a bit of backstory here. What are your thoughts? Well, Russia is breaking them away from Ukraine the way they did with uh, Crimea, and they basically control these regions through proxies. Uh, uh, nominally, these are rebels, but they really are proxies of Moscow. And uh, what uh, Putin is doing is taking over parts of Ukraine slice by slice. How is this being received both in Ukraine and in Russia? Obviously, there's a tremendous amount of outrage in Ukraine because there's a recognition that uh, deterrence, Western deterrence has failed. Russia would not have dared do this had there been a functioning Western deterrence. And here you have the most powerful military alliance in the world and in history, basically uh, playing the helpless giant in front of the remnant of a uh, superpower, uh, Russia. Within Russia, as long as there are not uh, large numbers of body bags coming back, the population is busy trying to make a living, uh, they don't mind, uh, uh, you know, winning uh, internationally or what seems to be winning. And uh, the invasion of Crimea was popular at the beginning, not as popular now. And so I don't think there has been a great negative effect so far uh, within Russia. What about world reaction? We certainly know of the pipeline between Germany and Russia. Biden, President Joe Biden, talking about severe sanctions. Does that resonate? Not with Vladimir Putin, evidently, because he's uh, quite unimpressed. He prepared for that. And you notice that the Germans are suspending the pipeline. They're not saying they're going to do with it entirely. And, of course, they are continuing to use Nord Stream 1, so they remain highly dependent on Russia. 
Uh, and uh, when it comes to the sanctions that Mr. Biden has instituted, they are focused on the breakaway regions with which the United States doesn't do that much uh, right. trade. And the threat is that if you take more, if you cross one more line, well, we'll really show you. And so Mr. Putin um, does not have a great deal of respect uh, for Mr. Biden, uh, nor does he seem to uh, fear Mr. Biden. And that's, that's a problem because uh, Putin looks for easy wins and he thinks that this is a relatively easy win. And so what is the message? Uh, we're going to sanction you with something really biting if you take more. But if he doesn't take more, if you just take these regions, then this is the extent of sanctions. Yeah. Well, this is not going to reverse uh, uh, Russia's uh, so-called uh, recognition because the recognition really is the prelude to annexation. And uh, I uh, am puzzled by uh, the evident helplessness that uh, the United States uh, and the alliance is showing in front of uh, what Mr. Biden called an invasion himself. Why do you not? Th- why do you think that Biden is not being uh, more aggressive with Putin? Um, because, as you're suggesting now, are we just to assume that Putin will just keep going? I mean, why stop now? Um, why, why is Biden taking the stance he is? Why not more severe? Well, um, if I may recount, uh, uh, he was vice president when. Uh, Russia invaded Crimea Mm -hmm. and illegally annexed that. He was vice president when Russia was allowed into Syria when they were largely excluded from the Middle East. Biden was president uh, uh, when the United States engaged in what now is widely viewed as a catastrophic withdrawal uh, from uh, Afghanistan. Uh, Robert Gates, a former secretary of defense, claimed, and perhaps unfairly or as an exaggeration, that he thought that Mr. Biden was on the wrong side of every major decision. Mr. Biden seems to be persuaded that uh, uh, he was elected to get United States out of wars, which is a commendable goal. No country wants to be involved in wars. Uh, But uh, that noble instinct to avoid conflict can be misunderstood by opponents and enemies as a sign of weakness, and it creates temptation. So at times, you have no choice but to use hard power, or at least leave the possibility of using hard power on on the table. Mr. Biden from very early on said that uh, there's no military option of of going into uh, Ukraine. And that may be entirely correct, but why signal it? But more than that, uh, he only allowed a trickle of defensive armaments to go into Ukraine when there should be an open spigot to make Ukraine a harder target. And uh, Ukraine uh, has been denied the basic ability to effectively defend itself against Russia. And that doesn't mean they have to defend, uh, defeat Russia, that Ukrainian uh, Tanks have to have the ability to march on Moscow. But what they need to do is they need to inflict enough damage on invading Russian forces that it would not be worthwhile, that mm-hmm. the reaction in Russia would be, well, the costs outweigh the benefits. 
Arl Brown with us, Professor of International Relations and a senior member of the Bunk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto, talking about what is going on on the border of Ukraine and Russia. Arl, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You're welcome. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Obviously, lots of tension along the Ukraine-Russian border. Uh, It's been going on for weeks now as we've seen uh, military operations and such uh, continue on in the region. And now uh, Russia has said that it has agreed to support what it calls a couple of uh, breakaway regions. Uh, which is uh, a very diplomatic way of putting things. Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. He's with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. How is all of this playing in the United States, Reggie? Is it a is it a top-of-mind issue? Is the United States willing to jump uh, into something like this? Well, I mean, look, the United States is going to jump into this situation uh, in a way that doesn't bring the military in towards Ukraine, if that uh, is part of the conversation, solely because Ukraine not being in NATO, the president has promised to keep the military out. Uh, Besides that, there's not really uh, an appetite amongst the American people for the United States to get involved uh, in another conflict that involves two other countries. That said, there are American interests and assets through the eastern flank uh, of NATO, and we heard from the president today that the uh, that there will be a kind of a troop bolstering uh, through parts of the Baltic states in the days and hours to come uh, to try and shore up NATO defense there. So it's not top of mind, uh, you know, for the country, but for the administration uh, and its responsibilities to uh, to the allyship with NATO, uh, this is top of mind. How much does NATO, uh, the issue of NATO uh, uh, play into this? You said Biden doesn't want to send in military because it's not a NATO country. Obviously, Russia doesn't want to see uh, NATO become or sorry, uh, Ukraine become a, a member of NATO. Is that Biden's out that it's not a NATO country? Therefore, we don't have to send uh, any any more military or any military in rather. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, the number one part of that is that because Ukraine is not in NATO, the United States is not going to put boots on the ground in the country. Now, that said, we heard from the administration today that it's not going to just kind of push Ukraine aside uh, and let it crumble uh, should Russia decide to further escalate uh, its kind of military assets in and around the border and cross further in even beyond these regions that President Putin uh, has announced that he's going to recognize. Uh, The president has said that there is still going to be militaristic uh, um, capabilities given to Ukraine. There will be kind of macroeconomic uh, abilities given to Ukraine. So the United States is still going to flood the Ukrainian government with money uh, and with weaponry and with training in order to ensure that its military is in a position to be able to push back. Uh, Is the fact that uh, Russia is supporting these so-called breakaway regions, are they in support of that? And is it a matter of time before Putin just takes the rest of Ukraine, nibble piece by piece? Well, look, military advisors uh, are concerned that this is kind of going to be a piecemeal assault uh, on a country that just yesterday, Vladimir Putin said, uh, shouldn't really exist. He doesn't really recognize Ukrainian sovereignty, saying that it's being run by a a puppet regime, uh, calling it a Western colony or a colony uh, of the United States. So there is a fear here that if Russia's military continues to advance further than just Luhansk and Donetsk into the kind of oblasts that surround them, uh, that that is going to be seen as a much fuller and much more broad invasion. Look, the United States said that if the, if Russia were to invade, that 
is where they would step in and kind of levy the most severe consequences by way uh, of economic sanctions, either on the uh, either on the country or on uh, on President Putin himself. Uh, they're calling this now the beginning of an invasion. The Ukrainian government is still pushing back, saying there's likely not going to be uh, a full out war. So, I mean, there still is an opportunity here for for diplomacy to try and tamp the situation down. Uh, but given where we are uh, in the situation, that door to diplomacy is very quickly closing. Uh, do the sanctions have any effect? Many have said that they're for regions that we don't trade with or, or have any real contact with anyway. Do the sanctions have much bite? Well, sure. I mean, look, uh, Canada is announcing sanctions uh, on uh, Russian entities uh, and uh, towards Russian banks. Uh, that was announced within the last hour or, or so. Uh, the president signed an executive order last night that freezes the ability to perform trade and financial transactions within those breakaway regions in Ukraine, which might not be all that consequential, at least uh, for for kind of Western business and uh, and Western economies. But the sanctions that were announced today by President Biden on Russian banks, uh, they are going to be heavily damaging to uh, the Russian economy at large, because what they are essentially doing is cutting Russia out of the Western financial market, making it much more difficult for uh, Russia to be able to trade and sell uh, its debts uh, in order to collect bonds. So these are going to be uh, incredible Um sanctions to be taken uh, against Russia. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the its initial steps, uh, and this is kind of starting medium, starting strong, that are only going to get stronger. Reggie Giacchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching tonight for more on all of this and the tension along Russia and Ukraine border. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Very excited because uh, normally, you know, this show, you get like, uh, you know, a half a dozen minutes or so to interview somebody. Alyssa Freeman's going to hang around for a couple of breaks. So we're glad uh, that she's uh, made herself available for that. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. And talk about time. When William told me about the time, I said, are you sure? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) What's going on here? All right. Uh, So we obviously saw what happened over the weekend and things in uh, Ottawa obviously calmed down an awful lot from what they were even just a couple of days ago. But man, I found it was ripe. Uh, when I heard the Prime Minister this weekend uh, giving us one of those big pouty speeches and asking Canadians to unite, uh, this considering he spent the last several weeks vilifying. I might add to win an election. The last 10% of us who uh, didn't get vaccinated, I'm fully vaccinated, got it, survived. Instead of celebrating the 90%, we're vilifying the last 10. Are you surprised that this man is now asking Canadians to unite? No, because that is just so uh, much part of uh, Trudeau's MO, isn't it, Scott? I mean, you know, he's, he came in, swept into power in 2015, and he was all about sunny ways. So the fact that sunny ways, uniting, it's basically all along the same theme. And quite, you know, quite honestly, Scott, what else is he going to say to Canadians? What else is he going mm. to ask Canadians to do? This, you know, the last three weeks have been fraught with, you know, many, many, many issues. You know, I, at least I wasn't living in, in Ottawa and I did have friends there and they said, you just can't believe what's going on here. Yeah. So after, after giving uh, this convoy, I'm not using the word truckers, Scott, because it, this wasn't about truckers. This no. was uh, a convoy with a, with another, with a very political agenda. And asking Canadians to unite after the divisive rhetoric that has been flooding the social media, all social media airwaves, mainstream media airwaves, 
Um, you know, the bots have been out like crazy and you know that they're out because they're responding to a lot of people who are supporting the Emergencies Act. You, you just know by their accounts that they're a bot. But I think that uniting was the right thing. And it was the only message that he could, quite frankly, give Canadians. It's funny. He'll, he, it's almost like he created this crisis almost to come in and call the Emergency Act and, and solve it all. It's almost like a Donald Trump kind of thing, except on the left. Uh, at the end of the day, um, I'm, uh, I still have a very strong feeling that he is very much responsible for the divisiveness in this uh, country. And yet again, prior to the speech about unity, he was saying that Canadians were actually united when reporters questioned him on the divisiveness in Canada. And he would quote the vaccination rate, like where, you know, as if because we're 90% of us are 80% to 90% of us are vaccinated, that may, that means we're all united. Uh, the same thing, most people uh, wanted the Emergencies Act, uh, simply because what else do you do after three weeks? But that doesn't mean they're necessarily happy about it. You know, it's interesting for those of us who were alive when uh, his father was prime minister, many of us were looking at one another. And I'm sure you thought this to Scott was, you know, when is he going to, you know, to invoke the phrase, the famous phrase, just watch me. As you know, that that's what uh, when reporters asked Trudeau um, Trudeau Sr. if he was going to invoke the War Measures Act. And he just looked at them straight in the eye and said, just watch me. And he did. So I think that a lot of us were expecting him to have a just watch me moment. And I think that that's what this is. You know, there's one thing before I came on, what I did was I went onto Twitter and I thought, well, you know, let's see what Twitter is screaming about with respect to the War Measures Act, the Emergency Measures Act. And here's the thing. There is a, uh, a hashtag that is trending quite heavily right now, and it's hashtag Trudeau was right. So when you talk about taking a litmus test of do Canadians support him, I'm not saying that, you know, right now I'm looking at a hashtag that says that that is the be all and end all. But I think that there are more people that were not aligned with the rhetoric and the narrative of the convoy than were aligned. I think that we have to look at the convoy as a well-organized, well-funded, well-communicated movement that certainly captured the imagination of a lot of people. You know, Scott, if this convoy had been around for maybe just five days, during those first five days, there was a lot of empathy for the convoy. Do you remember there was that, yeah. that moving video and, and friends of mine who I you know, were saying, oh, well, you know, reposting this video. And I'm thinking, are you crazy? Yeah, but I don't think I, I think Canadians are smarter than that. And they know that that sympathy obviously turned to anger when this dragged on and it got extremely political and such. But I think they're still aware of how it all started and how I think many Canadians are asking right now, how the heck did this ever get to this point? And that screams of a lack of leadership. You know, everybody's pointing fingers at one another, Scott, and I agree. And, you know, a lot of people were saying, okay, Trudeau, let's go. Do do what you need to do. Get these, you know, get these trucks out of there. And then people are saying, well, it's really a provincial responsibility. So I don't know. Notice how Joe Biden, notice how Joe Biden wasn't calling up any of the premiers, though, to get the borders open. Do you think Canadians and I'm, you know, I'm seeing some on the left make all these different excuses about whether it's jurisdiction or calling out the people that don't know their history and calling these people, uh, you know, uneducated and what have you. Uh, Is the left trying very, very hard to avoid the reality? And that is people may just be getting very tired of Justin Trudeau. 
It'd be interesting, you know, but we don't have any numbers to that effect. And I don't think that anybody would, I mean, unless somebody wanted to do a third party poll, but I, I would certainly be interested in that. And, you know, Scott, you mentioned something earlier that was quite um, profound when you said that, you know, Trudeau connected his narrative that Canadians want unity because of the number of people who are already vaccinated. You know, without talking about um, recent statistics, and we know that this, there was a poll that came out and said that, you know, more than 70% of Canadians were uh, wanted extreme measures to get rid of the convoy. So, mm-hmm. you know, there was that, that, that sentiment. But to draw, it was an interesting way to draw the line of um, action, of vaccination, and draw that line all the way to unity without really using any substantial numbers. And, and and I think it was a bit of a clever play, but I think that right now what Trudeau has to do is to demonstrate leadership and you've done your unity speech and you've done, and you've done that, but let's see what happens going forward because, you know, do Canadians, Canadians and most people have notoriously short memories and there certainly isn't going to be a federal election coming up soon. But it'll be interesting to see how he comports himself and what type of measures and what and what and what's going to happen going forward, because hiding in the sand and waiting for things to sort of figure themselves out is not going to continue to wash with Canadians. And thank goodness every time something like this happens or falls in the prime minister's lap, the conservative party is in such a disarray. It doesn't even matter. I mean, good timing on the good timing on getting rid of the leader there. It's a gift, Scott. It's a gift. It, is. I, you know, it really it, it, is. Hey, Alyssa, I wanted to, uh, I, I saw this actually over the weekend. And oddly enough, uh, our, our family was supposed to go skiing this weekend, but we couldn't get on uh, simply because we waited too long to book. And I guess they're still at capacity limits and such and and mask if you're, if you're uh, in the line. And I, I thought we were beyond that for ski hills, but apparently not. Uh, and, and I stumbled across a, uh, a video that's, circulating on social media and this didn't happen family day this happened at the beginning of uh, february but basically blue mountain uh ski resort uh which of course uh, you know we've all known about for years uh there was a situation where a family is getting on the chairlift and the father the man was not wearing a mask now i should say that they have asked him or had asked him i believe several times to put the mask on and he said no so this wasn't sort of uh they had warned him several times i guess so long story short they uh uh, they're they're trying the family's trying to board and the guy uh says no you can't a next thing you know securities is called then a scuffle breaks out and then the police come and uh, take him out to the cheering of all of these people uh, standing in line while he gets taken down for not wearing a mask uh, in front of his family, including his young kids. Uh, obviously, um, uh, you know, I'm fully vaccinated. I think everybody should be, and you got to play by the rules. But, man, what does it say when uh, police need to be called to take away a unmasked skier from a ski resort who, oddly enough, is wearing a helmet? Alyssa, your thoughts on uh, this video? I mean, I'm sure the hill is in a no-win situation here, but man, what does it say when we've got police taking people off of ski hills for ta- we're not having a mask? You know, I think that we have to, I'm going to take another sign to this, Scott, and listen, when it's freezing and you're skiing, uh, really, should you, should your face be covered anyways? Who knows? The guy was <laughs> uh, had a helmet on and he was going snowboarding and 
for all we know, he was going to pull up his scarf or his whatever it was to, to even ski down Blue Mountain because it was quite cold that weekend. And I know because I was there. But here's the thing. Notice how all of this was was videoed. And of course, it was videoed. And we have become we've come to a point it, within this pandemic where there's a lot of sort of performance or performative let's call it masking or just being performative. And you know how you go to a restaurant and you walk through and then you sit down and you eat. And then when you want to get up again, you put on your mask because people are starting to call that performative. I'm going to take that and run with it in this, in this particular instance, he knew exactly what he was doing. I think that there, you know, I quite frankly, I think he was just acting out. Um, You know, maybe he's had his own frustrations. It's private property, Scott, they can do whatever they want. And if it was a public ski hill, then I would say, okay, well, you know, maybe there's another side to this, but it wasn't. And he was acting actually like a five-year-old, the children, if they were indeed his children. I mean, I feel bad for the family because this is not just standing up for your rights. This is daddy looking like an idiot, to be quite honest. And it went on and on and on. And quite frankly, he did not have the support of the, the people who were also standing in line, who probably wanted just to get on the hill and ski. And I yeah. think that people are just getting tired of this. I don't. I think that there's very little support for this sort of performative and demonstrative, I'm tired of COVID stuff. We all want to get over it. And there's no need to act out. That film, I mean, I watched it from beginning to end. I was gobsmacked. And I honestly think that he just put on your mask. It's cold. Don't worry about it. And, you know, take your fight elsewhere. I would have done exactly the same thing as you suggested, but this guy decided he would make a point. Th- that being said, it just still is, is my God, has this what it has come to? Is that a guy is being taken off a ski lift, not because he's loaded, not because, because he's not wearing a mask. And again, I'm supporting, uh, you know, vaccination and all of this, but do you think it could have been handled differently? I mean, I've been on ski hills where guys have had their passes ripped off and that's it. You're gone. I'm just not sure this was, and you had to know this was going to happen when you create this sort of scenario. Do you think they handled it uh, well? We don't have too much time left, but I'll leave the rest to you. You know what? I think that we only saw a snippet. I don't think what I, from what I read that they asked him many, many times, please put on your mm-hmm. mask, please put on your mask. So I don't think that we saw all of that. And then he really just started to act out, flailing away and fighting and, you know, going limp. And, 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 and honestly, it was actually embarrassing to watch. So I think that, quite frankly, Blue Mountain handled it um, the best way that they could. And they felt that that were perhaps that, that the other people who were there might also be in danger. So I think in the heat of the moment i think they they did what they could and and at the end of the day stop performing or acting out and throwing tantrums when you're a grown adult do you think they'll do the same next time let's hope there isn't a next time scott good point Alyssa freeman pr and pop culture expert Alyssa, as always thanks so much for the time much appreciated especially two segments thanks so much have a great night thank you for having me on twice Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.